Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Longevity. It's one of those things I'm sure as you start to age, you start thinking about a lot more and more. And I definitely have noticed that the more I've aged, the more I have also been looking into different longevity, which is why I've had people coming on talking about peptide therapy and all these different modalities that you can use to stay as youthful as you can. Because my goal as I age is I want to be as youthful and as vibrant and active as possible until the day that I die. So whatever it takes to get to that point, I am completely down for that uh, because I don't really want to creep into old age. I want to go in and have all the energy that I have up to this point. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today I have Dr. Sandra Kaufman on the show to teach us how to improve our longevity all the way down at the cellular level. So she has her Kaufman protocol, which is a bunch of different steps that uh, help you to really kind of extend your life. And her goal is to live to be 120 years old. So she's deep into the longevity stuff, trying to figure out what is actually applicable and what isn't. So it was great having this conversation with her. And I also really enjoyed because she kept looking at me going, you're so young. Why do you care about this stuff? And like I said, I want to get ahead of the curve now and not be, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old and then wishing I had looked back at this um, at my current age. So uh, Dr. Sandra Kaufman is the founder of the Kaufman Anti-Aging Institute a forward-thinking educational company with the overarching goal of educating the general public on why we age and how we can minimize the effects of aging to live longer, healthier lives. And the Kaufman Protocol, which has both a book and app on the market, is a product of this and is underpinned by Sandra's longevity and cellular biology expertise. So let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Sandra. Thank you, Sandra, for coming on to the show. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Of course. And I'm really excited to chat with you about longevity and what we can do to really improve our bodies at the cellular level. But before we dive into that, let's learn a little bit more about you and your background. Uh, So I have this sort of uh, variable background, actually. I started out as a cell biologist once upon a time. I was a tropical biologist. I've been lost in many jungles, uh, attacked by many bats. Um, realized at some point that plants don't pay the bills, so I went to med school. I uh, did a year of neurosurgery. I've done a year of general surgery. At the moment, I'm an anesthesiologist, and I'm the chief of pediatric anesthesia at a children's hospital in Florida. Um, but I, of course, didn't want to age like everybody else that I know, so about 10 years ago, I embarked on this journey to try to figure out what to do about it, and using all of my skills from cells to bodies to drugs pharmacodynamics, that sort of thing, I decided that you age for very specific reasons and that you could slow it down. Yeah, and we talked briefly uh, before we started recording just about how as we age, we want to age gracefully. We don't want to be at an old age and everything's just completely falling apart and our bodies hurt and they're just not doing what we want them to do. We want to go out of this world in the best possible shape that we can be doing the things that we love. So, um, At what point in the aging process does your body start to change? Like, is it around that 25-year-old age, or is that kind of just a generalized uh, age that they throw out there? 
Uh, so in, in reality, the answer is 35, but of course it's a standard deviation based on genetics and environmental factors and that sort of thing. And it's also based on organs. Uh, kidney function starts going down at 18, but brain function doesn't even maximize until you're 25. So it's very variable on who you are and what body part you're talking about, but if you averaged it all together, most people would say 35. Interesting. Why would a kidney function um, slow down first? I have no idea. Probably because of the acidic environment that goes through kidneys. Hmm. Um, if you have to think about what every cell and every organ does, um, and they're going to take a beating or not. So, for example, your skin takes a beating because it's the only organ that gets hit with UV radiation, right? Your brain takes a beating because of the high glucose and oxygen use. Your kidneys take a beating because of all of the garbage that you have to excrete out your bladder. So it gets filtered through your kidney, cuts concentrated, sits in your bladder, and then your pee. So there's a high rate of kidney failure um, and kidney aging. And then if it's a lot of toxins, then you end up with bladder cancer. Um, liver is equally as bad because it has a lot of, uh, you know, detoxifying to do. The good news is that some kidney or liver tends to regenerate a bit, so that's not as bad. So you just have to think about what the organ is, what it does, and what it's exposed to. Interesting. So I would assume if you went back uh, 50 plus years ago and did the research between the different organs, the amount of chemicals in it, all that type of stuff that we're exposed to now is probably aging the liver and the kidneys faster than back then. Uh, I would venture to guess, yes. I mean, clearly it's never been done because no one actually wants to answer that question. Yeah. But probably so, yeah. I mean, the, the, the estimate now is that if you put a body in a coffin, it's not going to deteriorate for an extra 10 years because of all the preservatives we eat. Wow. Holy smokes. Now, I personally have never dug up bodies to be able to tell you that for sure, but it's not an unreasonable guess. Uh, yeah, seriously. And, Wow. That's uh, that's super interesting to think about. So, like you had mentioned, at some point uh, you decided to start switching over and trying to live with um, healthy longevity in mind. What were some of the first initial things that you changed in your own life to make that happen? Well, so I sort of attack this from a scientific point of view. Um, I don't tend to read the magazines on the racks in the grocery store. So all, you know, all the eat better, decoct your body, all that crap, I just kind of ignored. And I, I dove straight into actual bench research as a scientist. Um, and so I, I honestly started with free radicals and that sort of thing. Um, when you, st you know, I started doing this 10 years ago, so the literature is significantly different now than it was then. But I probably read, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of research articles trying to figure out exactly why cells do age. And some of it was absolute crap, and other stuff made a lot of sense. Um, and, and I tell people, because it's true, my office looked like a stickum factory sort of blew up, right? A little post-its, like, absolutely everywhere. And as it became more organized and the stickers sort of like, you know, clustered, I realized that in essence, there's seven reasons that your cells age. And I sort of tried to attack them as methodically as I could. And so uh, let's break it down to some of those foundations. What were some of the major scientific foundations that you discovered lead into healthy aging? 
Um, so I'm going to, let me say this first. Uh, there's the absolute scientific terminology, and then I try to create a terminology where anyone can sort of understand it. And my brain sort of goes back and forth. So if I say something that doesn't make sense in one or the other, just stop me. Um, but the first one, the first category, or I call them tenons, is DNA alterations, right? And in my, my uh, generic sort of understanding of this, this is the instruction manual for your body, right? And DNA falls apart for several reasons. The first thing that we look at is telomere length, right? The ends of your chromosomes sort of unravel and fall to pieces over the course of time. And there is an indirect correlation, actually direct correlation, between the length of your telomeres and the length of your life. Um, and you can have that measured. Unfortunately, it's not the same in all cells. So people are always annoyed that, oh, this one cell represents my entire existence. And, and it doesn't. Different cells have different lengths, et cetera. But it gives you a, a gross understanding. Um, secondly, we talk about epigenetic modification. And this is basically methylation on the DNA. It can also be acetylation, phosphorylation, and a variety of other chemical changes on your histones. But essentially, it's how the environment changes your DNA and how you process pieces of your DNA as you get older. Uh, and epigenetic modification is the reason that identical twins are less identical as they get older. Um, and the last thing in this category is DNA protection. So DNA sort of folds up into histones and then it folds up into uh, different chromatin patterns. And this gets destroyed over time. And there are many things that we can actually do to protect the quaternary structure of our DNA. So that, in a nutshell, which is probably more than you wanted to know, uh, is tenant number one. No, it's really good because. Um like with genes and DNA, like you were kind of talking about, uh, just because you have a gene doesn't mean it has to express itself. Uh, depending on the environment that you're in and the things that you feed those genes, that can make it turn on and off. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's that, that's pretty much correct. That's exactly right. Um, so, and up until a certain point, right, you, you don't want to screw with your genes until you're an adult, um, for the most part, right? Because these genes and the timing of how they uh, express their, their proteins changes us from an infant to a toddler to a kid, you know, all the way through adolescence to an adult. The key point at this at this point is you want to stay an adult. You want to you don't want to turn into old crotchety horrible person. So that's when we want to sort of arrest the epigenetic changes. Mm -hmm. And so at what point do you discover when you should start taking care of that then? So you want to do healthy things all the time. And there are some things that we know have positive epigenetic effects and some things that have very negative epigenetic effects. So if you can stay away from the negative stuff as long as possible, obviously you're going to fare much better. Like we know that high alcohol, smoke, environmental toxins, all of those things are negative epigenetic modifiers. Uh, we know things like green tea or the chemical ECGC uh, in green tea is an extremely positive epigenetic modifier. So you can sort of do this at any age because you're positively affecting it. But you don't want to be too, too, too crazy uh, until you're fully formed. Yeah, I was just thinking about like teenagers and stuff. They like to experiment a lot. Um, and luckily, they're at that point in life where their bodies are very resilient and they can rebound very quickly. Um, but when they're in that poverty stage and they're, you know, trying out all these different things, is that having a major impact on their DNA over the long haul compared to if they would have waited, you know, 10 more years before they got into that? Well, I don't have any study to demonstrate that it does or doesn't, but common sense sort of dictates that it absolutely would have a negative effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, your, your frontal lobe doesn't fully develop, and that's where you make all your conscious decisions until you're 25. So if you're a 16-year-old pothead, you're probably not going to fare as well as, you know, a 40-year-old pothead, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Um, so after the DNA alterations, what is kind of the next phase that you look into? All right, so tenant two is what I call, uh, it's, it's the energy systems of your cell. So this is basically mitochondria. Uh, mitochondria, obviously, those little organelles we all drew in the fifth grade. It's like a big uh, Tylenol-shaped capsule with a squiggly line on the inside. And this is where we make all of our cellular energy. And depending on how much energy any one particular cell needs sort of dictates how many of these little organelles we have in our cells. And they take a dive for very specific reasons. Um, so number one, by the time you're 40, you're, you're deficient in something called nicotinamide. And you need that because it makes NAD, which is extremely important in something called the electron transport chain. Uh, nicotinamide also does uh, three other things that are very important around the cell. So if you're deficient, um, one of the key problems here is that your mitochondria aren't going to function as well. Uh, the other thing that happens in mitochondria is because it uses oxygen, um, a lot of oxygen, that's why we need oxygen. Uh, it, it, the oxygen becomes radicalized, meaning it gets an extra electron um, over the course of time. And depending on how much, um, how many mitochondria you have, what your activity level is, it's somewhere between one to 9% of your oxygen gets radicalized. And radicalized oxygen um, sort of floats around your cell and causes problems. I like to think of it as little mini bombs all over. So it destroys uh, the structure of your mitochondria, it can destroy the structure of your entire cell if it gets out of hand. So, your cell is pretty smart though, so it makes um, free radical scavengers. Unfortunately, over the course of time, your body doesn't make enough free radical scavengers, so you have more damage from the radicals. So, you can actually augment free radical scavenging uh, by either taking direct free radical scavengers or secondary free radical scavengers that cause your body to make more of its endogenous stuff. And this is like the glutathione and the superoxide dismutases and the catalase and that sort of thing. So, after 40 years old, is it beneficial to start utilizing uh, different uh, therapies such as hyperbaric treatment and that type of stuff to get more oxygen into your body? No. No. So, so actually, that's a really funny thing that you ask. So hyperoxic uh, compartments in my world, I think are absolutely like the worst thing you can possibly do for yourself. Mm. Other longevity specialists will tell you that they're good for you. Um, my understanding on a cellular level is if you want to, and every, every study says this, if you're looking at senescent cells, and senescent cells are cells that have undergone DNA damage, they've shut down, um, they've become problem cells, some people call them zombie cells, I like to think of them as grumpy old man cells, but they exude something called the SASP, which is an inflammatory cytokine in profile. But, so in, a, in an experimental model, if you want to create senescent cells, you give them too much oxygen. It's bad. If you want to kill your hair follicles, give them too much oxygen. So sitting in a hyperoxic chamber in my world, it's a really bad idea. That being said, if you are a diabetic and you can't get enough blood supply, you can't get enough oxygen in your blood to go heal tissue, then it's not such a bad idea. But in terms of actual longevity, um, I just don't think it's a great idea. And other people are going to tell me that I'm wrong. Um, but that's just on a cellular level, it's just not a good idea. Now, granted, there are a ton of other good things you can do, but I wouldn't classify that as one of them. So give us a couple examples of some of the good things to do. All right, so anyone over the age of 40 needs nicotinamide. Uh, and it comes in several forms. Uh, there's nicotinamide riboside. Uh, there's nicotinamide mononucleotide. Those two have sort of cornered the market. 
Um, because it's so necessary uh, and because there's a whole lot of trademark and copyright infringement uh, lawsuits going on at the moment, instead of taking PO, people take it in various methods. So for, I don't know, a thousand bucks, you can go get an IV infusion of NAD. You can uh, get nasal sprays. You can get transdermal patches. You can get sublinguals. It's just because it's so popular and people are trying to make money out of the idea that everyone's deficient. So the cheapest way is just oral supplementation. Um, but choose whichever mechanism of action you want after 40 you need it and can you take too much uh so the answer is uh yes and no um it's really hard to take too much that being said if you go and you eat an entire bottle of it yes it's probably going to be too much most people are deficient i actually don't know i mean i could theorize what would happen if you took too much but i've never actually met anyone that took too much um, I do know that if you take an IV infusion, your blood levels are going to, you know, they peak dramatically and then they drop dramatically. So if someone's extraordinarily deficient, it's not a bad way to start, but I wouldn't do it on a, on a regular basis. I think you'd start with an IV and then continue on a PO. And if you just want to be lazy, you can just do a PO level, which is what most people do. Now, someone similar to my age, 31, is it yeah, beneficial yeah. to start taking that now or should I wait yeah. until after 40? Wait. 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 And, and it's not necessarily age-dependent. Like, the 40 is sort of just an average, right? Life is a bell-shaped curve. That's when most people would need it. If people have dropping energy levels, um, that's when you not want to start taking it because that's the, the one thing you're going to see. Um, nicotinamide is also crucial for DNA repair mechanisms. It's a sirtuin co-activator, or it's a, it's a coenzyme for sirtuins, which you're not going to see until you're 40. It also is a communication device between uh, your nucleus and your mitochondria. So you probably aren't going to notice any of those other things. You're just going to realize that you're tired and have no energy. So at that point, yeah, take the NAD. For people that have young kids um, and they're just tired and have no energy all the time, is that the same type of tired and no energy you're talking about or different? <laughs> that's a good question. I think that's a de I think if you have three kids and you're running around like your head's on fire, I think you're just, that's just life. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I can fix that. That's time and uh, hiring a babysitter. Yep. Perfect. Um, so that was tenant two. Uh, how many tenants are there? Are there seven? seven. There are seven tenants. And, and, you know, we can sort of gloss over a few of them. Like, so three is pathways. There's this, uh, there's sirtuin pathways, the AMP kinase pathway. These you want to turn on, and then there's the mTOR pathway that you kind of want to turn off. Um, the only one that people really like to talk about uh, is the AMP kinase pathway because this is what gets triggered when people have their caloric restriction diets, mm. right? So when you don't eat for a long period of time, your body senses uh, a drop in energy, uh, which is paired with an increase in something called AMP, which is the opposite of ATP. Uh, and then your body says, ha ha, I'm starving. And then the cells go into a state of hibernation and it triggers sort of enzymes and protein cascades that help to hibernate your body. So that is how caloric restriction diets actually help longevity. Interesting. Um, and when you say caloric restriction, is this significant restriction or is it just like a couple hundred calorie restriction? So people tend to go, you know, there's there are all of these competitions right now, right? I haven't eaten anything for 18 hours. I haven't eaten anything for 22 hours, blah, 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 blah. So the answer is no one really knows at this point. Um, but definitely caloric reduction in any way, shape, or form is going to activate the AMP kinase pathways, and you're going to benefit. So um, it's, it's uh, in line with intermittent fasting and the benefits yeah. of intermittent fasting. That's exactly right. Um, I will tell you, however, for people that are too lazy to intermittent fast, and I am... Uh, 
a sort of a renowned junk food junkie, you can take actual drugs and chemicals that tell your body that you are calorically restricted and have the same pathways activated without actually having to starve. So there are absolute cheat mechanisms around this. <laughs> of course. There always is. Of course. <laughs> this is America. Uh, what is tenant four? Tenant four. This is called quality control. Um, so in my factory model, right, uh, things get mucked up and you have to fix them. And the same happens to us. There are four protein repair mechanisms in your cells, and there's four DNA repair mechanisms. Uh, and there's also uh, recycling, which is our version of autophagy, right? So uh, DNA uh, fixing is extremely important because in every cell every day, you've got 10 to the fifth DNA errors. 10 to the fifth. That is a ton. And if you don't fix them, either your cell is going to become senescent and then apoptotic or you're going to get cancer. So having your DNA repair mechanisms uh, as up-to-date and in-tune as possible is going to help you. Um, and then autophagy, as you recycle pieces and parts of organelles that don't work very well, uh, you are much better off for a whole variety of reasons. So the good news is we have agents that do both of those things. Can you share what those are? Sure. So the, the two good ones for repair, uh, re increasing the repair of your DNA, there's something called AC11, and it comes from a plant from the Amazon. And there's another one, uh, commercially it's known as fern block. Uh, it's called polypodium. Uh, it is, where is it from? It's a tropical plant. I remember exactly where it's from. But basically it, it increases uh, the burr, uh, which is the base pair repair mechanism system. So... We know that it improves your DNA, and especially in the skin, it's supposed to reduce your um, risk of skin cancer. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. So it sounds like a tenant four is kind of one of those uh, uh, really important ones that you can actually get quite a bit done with. You can, and this is one of those things that no one's ever going to feel or see. Mm. You know, people say, I, you know, I tell people to take something, they're like, yeah, I don't feel any different. Well, of course you're not. You know, <laughs> I'm reducing your relative risk of cancer. Are you going to feel that? Probably not. It's sort of, you just have to sort of assume that it's true or not, right? Yeah, it's amazing how many cells basically go bad every single day. Yes. No, it's, it's absolutely true, um, which, which actually gets us, well, we can I skip, that's actually 10 at six. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get there in a minute. Remind me about stem cells. Um, but anyway, so that's where we are. That's four, five, fives is your inflammatory system. Uh, it starts out as your immune system, and it causes you to be inflamed over the course of time. Uh, many things happen along the way. So your immune system does not work as well as it should. So people, as they get older, are more prone to infections. Uh, they're more prone to not responding well to vaccines, which is why older people still get COVID despite getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that these cells that are supposed to help us turn into cancers, which are leukemias and lymphomas. So your immune system just totally gets screwed up. We become inflamed, and it's just a miserable experience. The good news is we can sort of optimize all of these things and turn off our inflammatory system and reduce all of the issues that come with it. It sounds like that would also that would include reactions to food. That would include uh, lack of sleep, uh, a lot of lifestyle factors. Actually, that seems to be would fit into that realm. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, Histamine comes from mast cells, and mast cells are part of your immune system. And if you have overactive mast cells, um, you just become, uh, you know, you get absolute horrible allergies. And there's many agents that we know of that stabilize mast cells. Um, I've cured a few people's asthma just sort of by accident, putting them on something for a different reason, and they're like, oh, my God, my asthma's gone. Well, y voila, you know, not surprising stuff. 
Um, but one of the best things about this tenant is a lot of people, as they, as they get older, have a ton of aches and pains. Um, and if I can make your aches and pains go away, you feel better, you do more, and you just feel like more lively and young. Yep. Going back to the longevity piece. Exactly. Want to feel good at the end of your life. Yep. All right, uh, tenant six and stem cells. All right, so ten, right, so tenant six, I, I call individual cell needs because despite the fact that I like to pretend that every cell is exactly the same, clearly they're not. Right, a red cell floating around in your bloodstream is going to have different challenges than your liver cell versus your brain cell that's there forever. And in this category, I put the senescent cells that we want to get rid of and the stem cells that we want to keep forever. Right, uh, you have basically a limited number of stem cells. They can sort of self-reproduce to a certain degree, but not really. Um, so these are things we really, really, really want to take care of. And the stem cell niche is a really protected environment. Um, and one of the things that it just really is sensitive to is levels of oxygen. And I'm just abhorred, as we talked about before, that people love high oxygen because it's just destroying your stem cell population. And that's going to ultimately be what does people in. Well, one of the reasons, but that's a big one. Stem so cells. when they do stem cell treatments, aren't they taking your stem cells and then are they spinning it and that gets it to replicate? How do they get it to replicate outside of your body? Right. So taking your own stem cells, which is really interesting because it depends on how old you are. Mm. If you take out a young person's stem cells, they just put them in culture and in a, in a nice little medium that sort of resembles a stem cell niche and they grow them and they love them and they reproduce. If you take stem cell to, cells out of an old person, you're going to get old person stem cells. So if you're thinking about banking your stem cells, do it as young as possible. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you can get them from your bone marrow. You can get them from your fat. There is a place in Toronto where they get them from your hair follicles. And in fact, I think I'm going to go up to Toronto this summer because I just found out about this and have my hair cell stem, uh, hair follicle stem cells, there we go, um, put in culture. So I'll have them when I'm older. Um, but you don't need to spin them. You just sort of put them in a nice warm little bath and they're happy and you give them wine and they, they watch Netflix and then they reproduce and they're happy. Is there a way to replicate that same uh, type of environment within your body? Or is your body going to use them too quickly before they can replicate like crazy? So it just sort of depends on the stress that you put on your body. If you're forcing your body to constantly turn things over, uh, you're, you're replicating your stem cells more quickly. Um, you want to sort of nurse them along, give them all the wonderful things that they need. And, and, and in my book, I talk about all the wonderful things that you want to do to maximize the niche of your stem cells. Right, because they're the stem cells that are going to last forever. So you want to maintain the nutrient bath. You don't want micronutrient deficiency. You want decent um, fatty acids. You want decent calories without overdoing it. You want, you know, it's just a variety of factors to try to create the perfect little nursery for your stem cells. Hmm. So what is tenant seven? Tenant seven. So uh, like any factory, you got to take out the trash. Right. So this is basically the garbage pile of, of your body. The easiest thing to talk about first is lipofusion accumulation. Uh, anytime you uh, have uh, cells undergoing autophagy, um, especially mitochondria, you're, you're, the cell sort of takes all the pieces apart, uh, apart, recycles them and uses them to build a new mitochondria or whatever organelle it is. But there's always some little glob that your cell just doesn't know what to do with. It's usually some metals, some proteins, some undigestible material. Um, and I kind of, I'd like to call this the kitchen drawer phenomenon. The cell takes this gunk that it can't digest and it shoves it in the back, right? And for a short-lived cell, it doesn't really matter because when the cell dies, it dies too. But for long-lived cells like your brain cells, 
um, they just fill up with gunk. And if you look at the brain of like 90, 100 year olds, they're filled with lipofusion. And clearly you're not gonna be functioning well if your cells are filled with gunk. So what we wanna do is try to limit the amount of lipofusion accumulation if you can. And there, there, there are ways to do that. Um, but the most important thing in this category is actually glycation, which is glucose, right? Everything, and it's not, I, I use glucose sort of as, as the big term meaning all sugars. So it's fructose, sucrose, all those sorts of things. But it's, it's molecularly sticky. It's sticky on the outside, it's sticky on the inside. It destroys innumerable structures. It sticks to basically everything it can. So it ruins enzymes, it ruins proteins. Um, of course, we measure it with hemoglobin A1C because it's sticking to the red cells. But in, in reality, it sticks to everything. Um, and when it sticks specifically to different things, it's called different things. So most uh, importantly, it's called an AGE, which is an advanced glycation end product when it sticks to proteins. These things are devilishly uh, inflammatory, um, and they stick to your collagen. It destroys your collagen over time, and it just sort of destroys you from the inside out. So limiting uh, glycation is extraordinarily important. Now, um for people with larger bodies, do they have more storage sites for a lot of this junk to um, remain in their body? And is it more difficult for them to get it out of their body? No, the bigger you are, there's more cells you have. Mm -hmm. right. So it's it's a cellular problem. So it doesn't really matter if you have 100 cells or four cells, the cells has to function. And if it doesn't function, it doesn't really matter. So the problem with having a big body versus a small body has to do with actually plumbing, right? The, the, the bigger you are, the higher your blood pressure has to be, which means the harder your heart has to pump, so you're going to have hypertrophy. So over the course of 100 years, it's going to be tough to maintain appropriate uh, supply of nutrients and oxygen and all that kind of stuff to the outermost parts of your body. So, for example, extremely fat people, um, which I know is now a social issue, we're not allowed to say that people are fat, um, but it's a huge health hazard. The, the body just can't sustain it, which is why they, you know, get diabetes and high blood pressure and heart failure and stroke and all that sort of thing, because it's just physiologically challenging to support a large body structure. Isn't that fascinating in the medical industry now? You can't tell a patient that their size is going to cause health problems. Yeah, I, I find it baffling. I don't know how we ch changed a medical issue into a social issue. I, I really just don't get it, right? That's like saying, oh my God, you're bald, right? Yeah, it's just a fact, right? It just, it is. It's, I, I, don't, I just don't understand why we can't, actually, that's not a good analogy because people that are bald, you can't help that you're bald. But people can generally help what they put in their mouths to a certain degree. I mean, there, there is some genetic obesity. At the same time, it's just such a health concern. Um, and it really bothers me because when COVID started, uh, they would show pictures of like 400 pound people and they'd say, these people are completely healthy and they're dying of COVID. And the answer is, well, they're not completely healthy because, you know, they're huge. And the more fat you have, the more inflamed you are. So it makes sense that this, your just whole body is going to go into a state of an inflammation when irritated by a virus. So I just, you know, I wish it would not be socially inappropriate and medically appropriate to say, you know what, it would just be better for you if you were smaller. Yeah. And just because something's not diagnosed doesn't mean you're, that makes you healthy. Well, just undiagnosed means you haven't gone to a doctor recently. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It, yeah. Just like you said, it's weird that the social issues are taking over healthcare and medical care. And then, I mean, the downstream effect of that in 10 years is going to be very interesting. Well, what I think really interesting now is that people are either uber healthy, right? They're on these strict, crazy diets and they exercise like crazy or they don't do squat and they're 400 pounds. 
Mm. Like, it seems like we've lost the middle ground, which is really weird, because generally speaking, life is a bell-shaped curve, and here it is totally not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could be wrong, though. This could just be my perception, because I, you know, I see, <laughs> I, I work at a hospital, I see all sorts of crazy stuff. Mm. So you have all the tenants, um, and then in your book, you dive a lot deeper into all of them and what you can do for them. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And I will warn people that if they try to read book one, um, half the first half is the most depressing thing you'll ever read. And I try to make it cheer you with really bad jokes. Um, but it is. It's like, oh, my God, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Oh, my God, you know, down, 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 down. So the second half of the book tries to be like kind of the solution half. Like, all right, here are the top 15 agents. What can they do in the tenants? How well do they do them? And how are you going to create your, your protocol? So... If you can get through the first part of being depressed, the second half has the answers. <laughs> I think the amount of people that have been uh, dealing with anxiety and depression up to this point over the last couple of years, I'm sure a book isn't going to be the thing that ends it all for them. So I think, <laughs> I think we're prepared for it. This is a great time for it. Um, now, when it comes to longevity and uh, trying to figure out exactly what it is that your body needs, is there any specific testing that is really good that pretty much everyone should be testing? Um, or is it very dependent upon who you are? Uh, that's an excellent question. And it sort of depends on exactly who you are. So number one, it's age dependent. If you are 35 and completely healthy, you're probably absolutely fine. Right. If you're 35 and you have a history or family history of horrible medical problems, everyone's died in their 40s of coronary disease. You know, you're you're something different altogether. You know, if you're in your 20s and everyone, you know, has had some horrible cancer, you should get checked. But for a normal person, um, as they get older, normal labs to start with are going to be fine. You want to make sure your liver is OK. You want to make sure your kidneys OK. You want to make sure all the baseline regular stuff is intact. Right. Now, beyond that is when the longevity obsession begins. And once you've crossed that threshold, like, you can test pretty much anything you want to test. It's a matter of whether or not you're going to see any results in terms of treating it, right? You can get your epigenetics tested. You can get your telomeres measured. You can get your glycation scores. You can measure, like, what kind of bugs are in your gut to determine if you've got good bugs or bad bugs. You can have all of your genetics uh, checked for, like, likelihood of different diseases. You can have every sub-whatever of every everything dissected and measured. And then you stare at a plethora of numbers and wonder what to do. And that's always kind of the funny part. And that's why people always call me. They're like, all right, I've got tons of data. Now what do I do? Yep. And then I help them. That's where the Kaufman protocol comes in. That's exactly Takes right. Takes you to the next level. Yep. Um, well, Sandra, is there any final things you want to make sure that we cover when it comes to longevity and uh, just people taking care of themselves that, so that they can age gracefully? Well, the idea sort of is, as I said, like the first part of all of this is extraordinarily depressing. And I don't want people to think, oh, my God, this is horrible. There are molecular agents. Most of them are over the counter that fix or at least partly fix most of these things. And what I discovered is that any one thing, any one agent can do several things. So I created a rating system so that you know exactly what you are doing. So. Uh, the first book has 15 agents. The, the book that I'm about to release right now has another 29 agents in it. Um, and they all come with a seven-digit rating number. So if you line them up, you know exactly how well you are addressing each of the seven tenants. 
So if you look at a number now, each in each line, it's going to be from zero to three. So zero means it does obviously nothing, and three is the maximum. Three means there is evidence in humans that it's amazingly effective, and one or two are sort of in between, right? So if you really, really want to treat all of the tenants of aging, you make sure that you have agents that treat each one of the categories. Um, and then if you are predisposed to having a disease in any of these categories, you want to sort of load up more points in that category. So example, if your family is all diabetic or you're pre-diabetic or you're junk food junkie like I am, take a ton of stuff to lower your blood sugar in 10 and 7, right? If you have some sort of arthritic problems or autoimmune problems or that sort of thing, anything with that your immune system is out of whack, you, you load up more points in category 5. So you can sort of take the information that I have given people and arrange it to sort of create a personalized protocol to initiate their longevity. Perfect. And uh, my final question for you is, what is your vision of what healthy looks like and what are three things you do daily to reach that vision? Um, okay, number one, I swallow a ton of pills. I take 50 things a day, which is probably a little bit absurd, but I am the world's biggest guinea pig, and I live by the credo, you know, measure pro-con ratio, and if there aren't any cons, go ahead and do it. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I exercise daily, because I think that's a huge component of it, and the key to exercise is finding something that you absolutely just love to do. So I'm a huge swimmer, and I'm a huge rock climber. You know, everyone's got their thing. Whatever it is, just get out and do it. Um, and three is, is I think that people make the mistake of, oh, my God, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm going to die soon, so why keep trying? And the answer is, you're not. We're going to live to 90, 100. I'm going to 120. So plan accordingly. Like, don't, don't ever go, yeah, I'm done, because you're not. Plan accordingly, money, time, exercise, family, whatever the hell you want to do, just keep doing it. And those would be my three golden things that I do every day. When you take that many pills, do you ever get upset stomach or anything like that? Nope, not a thing. Nope. I mean, they're divided up, right? I mean, it's, I, it's some in the morning, some in the afternoon, some at night. I try to spread out my free radical scavengers. I try to take things that are oil-soluble or fat-soluble with food, things that are water-soluble. It doesn't really matter. Um, I try to work on, you know, I design it by half-life, blah, 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 it, which is far more than anyone really needs to know. But the answer is no, it doesn't bother me a bit. Okay. Yeah, I know some people, they can take, you know, just a couple pills and it really irritates them. So I'm always curious for people that pop a bunch, if they start to interact in different ways and cause your gut to be a little angry. No, not at all. And it's interesting in a lot of studies, a lot of studies used to be like one agent, what does it do? And more recent studies have been combining things um, like spermidine and resveratrol or astaxanthin and delphinidin. And, and they all tend to be, at this point, synergistic, which means that you don't have to take a full dose of anything. You can take a significantly reduced dose um, of many things to sort of get the same effect. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what I do. Because everyone always asks me for a dose of something, and all the doses are dependent upon, or at least designed by taking one thing at a time. So I take a significantly reduced dose. I just take a ton of it. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, people can find more about you at KaufmanProtocol.com. And then what's the name of your book? So it's really clever. It's called, called The Kaufman Protocol. <laughs> nice. See? Simple. Yeah. yeah. Actually, and this one's called Why We Age and How to Stop It. And book two, which is sitting at the uh, editor's desk, so hopefully a month or two that'll be out, um, it's called Aging Solutions. So got fingers crossed it'll be out soon. It's been forever. <laughs> yeah. Yep, and um, I'm sure those books are all found where books are sold. Amazon, Definitely. Barnes & Noble, all that type of stuff. 
Uh, actually, it's only on Amazon. Only on Amazon. Oh. And, and the reason it's only on Amazon is what's there's. In the old days, you had to go to a publisher, editor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they take like 90% of your money mm-hmm. versus you put it on Amazon and you actually get more control over what you put in the book because um, the publishers and agents who wanted to change everything, I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is my book. So Amazon doesn't care uh, and they give you more cash back. So the answer is it's on Amazon, but I guarantee they'll send it to you the next day because, I don't know, 50,000 of them have sold already and no one's complained. Perfect. All right, Sandra, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I hope people go and read your book slash books um, when the other one comes out as well. And then people can start uh, improving their own longevity and start aging to maybe 120, just like you. I hope so, because I don't, I don't want to be the only old person hanging out you know, at that age. I need some company. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you learned a lot from Dr. Sandra. I know I did, and it makes me really want to read her book, so I got to put that on my reading list of things to uh, read this year is her book all about longevity. So, And if you want um, links to any of the resources that we talked about, then head on over to summitforwellness.com slash 173, and all of those resources will be there, including the link to her book. One of the things I thought was really interesting is how she was bringing up that once you reach certain ages, that's when you want to start doing uh, some of these protocols. So that's good to know because otherwise I probably would have started jumping right into stuff, but I haven't reached those ages that she was talking about. So I guess I'll sit back and wait um, unless there's more clarity between now and then when I get to those ages. Next week, I have Dr. Glenn Livingston on the show. Let's go learn who he is and what we'll be talking about. I am here with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Hey, Glenn, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? Um, I can juggle five balls. Five balls? Are they flaming I balls can't. or just regular? <laughs> um, a funny story is when I was a kid, I wanted to juggle knives, so I taped up a big butcher knife. And I, I juggled it in my room with the masking tape on it until I could throw it 100 times without missing. Um, and then I, I didn't tell my mom about this at all. And then one day I just take up all the off all the masking tape and I come downstairs and I start juggling with a big butcher's knife, and she wouldn't let me juggle knives after that whatsoever. So, um, no, they weren't flaming balls. It, it was uh, bean bags is really what I like to juggle with. It's it's been a long time since I've been doing that, but it's a kind of meditation, and um, something that really humbles me repeatedly. That because um, you know you can do it and then you can't do it and then you can do it and you can't do it and you have to. You can't be thinking about other things while you're doing that. You have to be really focused. So it's a nice kind of meditation that brings me back to the present moment. Yeah, I can do three just fine, but once you start adding in more, it gets complicated. There's a book called Juggling for the Complete Klutz that will show you how to take three to five. Mm. But I, they told me this. On a scale of one to ten, juggling three balls is about a seven. Juggling four balls is about an 11. And juggling five balls is about a 37. Because <laughs> um, you have to create that extra space, and it, it took me a long time. Yep. Spent a lot of time picking balls up from the floor. I don't know if I would do it as an old man now, but uh, yep. Uh, yeah. Well, what will we be learning about in our interview together? Um, you're going to learn how to think like a permanently healthy person. You're going to learn how to get rid of your food obsession, um, overeating tendencies. Um, the, how, how to manage the desire to break your own best thinking. We all have our best thinking and then we have what we actually do when we are faced with a temptation. And you're going to learn some methods for 
uh, for inserting a space between stimulus and response so that you can redirect yourself and um, stop overriding your own best judgment and do what you really believe is best. What are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? <laughs> you know, I, I try. I actually try not to preach about diet in particular because it it took me um you know it took me 15 years to evolve to where I am. But I I really think we're designed to have a lot more fruits and vegetables. I really think that the bulk of our diet is supposed to be fruits and vegetables, and we we think of them as an afterthought. Um, Dr. Furman says the salad is the main meal, and I think that's probably the message that everybody should have is that the salad is the main meal and not all this other stuff. The salad is not an afterthought or something you have on the side. The salad is the main meal. Um, and the other things should be afterthoughts. That's, that's what I think. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Um, drink nothing but purified water. Um, get a little bit of sun every day and take some time to write down and reflect on your thoughts rather than just acting upon them every morning so that you can get yourself into a space to be more uh, proactive and centered and um, kind and constructive with yourself and other people. Oh, the reasoning behind why people struggle with binge eating and all the uh, the mental challenges with that is very fascinating. So you will definitely enjoy that episode with Dr. Glenn. And until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.